Good evening. It is good to see everyone tonight. We're going to be in Matthew, or actually, excuse me, Luke chapter 18 uh, this evening. It will be this evening. I was telling our brother uh, earlier, I said, I always, where I attend, we have a Sunday morning service, uh, and we just have a really elongated Sunday morning service, uh, and then we don't have an evening service. So I always have to catch myself when I'm visiting somewhere. Because I always say good morning, no matter how late and even it is. So you'll have to forgive me for that. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I can't remember just how far back it was that uh, a brother reached out to me about coming here tonight. But it's funny because I made my way all over the map uh, when I first saw Bridgeport. For some reason in my mind, I read Northport, which is completely other direction, down around Tuscaloosa. And I was thinking, well, I'm at camp at Hamilton would it be better to just stay the night and then come on Sunday and just maybe be with you here Sunday morning? Well, then I looked at, you know, then I was like, well, that's not where that's at. And then I saw Chisholm, which is also a highway in Florence where I grew up that leads into the state of Tennessee. And so when I was uh, talking about being so close, close to the state of Tennessee, I wanted to make it that Chisholm Highway. And that wasn't right either. So I'm just happy that I'm here with you tonight. And I didn't end up at the wrong place and with some different brethren who might be like, what are you doing here? Uh, and so it is good to be here with you this evening. And uh, as I have done uh, uh, since going to the hospital back in October with leukemia, I always want to make it a point to thank all of our brothers and sisters who have kept me in their prayers. And uh, I felt those prayers. And I believe with all my heart that I am living and walking and breathing proof that prayer does work and that there is power behind prayer. So I thank you for that. In Luke chapter 18, we get this uh, story in the life of Christ about the rich, and we add a lot of times, young ruler, right? That's what we call it, the rich young ruler. And this person who comes and asks Jesus a question. And so we'll be in Luke chapter 18, and and we'll jump around uh, there a little bit and, and look at other verses as well. But my topic tonight is that God is good and that he is full of good will. In our world today, we tend to get it mixed up in society and really as human beings, period, in the history of mankind, we often equate uh, when bad things happen that somehow why would a good God, a loving God, allow those things to happen? And uh, we oftentimes, the world acts as though the problem of suffering is a way to shut Christians up. If I want to get rid of a Christian, then I just ask them about the problem of sin or the problem of suffering and pain. And that will just get them to be quiet. And, and that shouldn't be the case at all. It's pretty plain in the Bible that it tells us that the, the, the wages of sin is death. And because of the choice that Adam and Eve made in the garden, that sin entered the world, that pain and death entered the world, and that the wages of sin is death and pain, that there will always be suffering. People will ask me, you know, do you ask, when you were in the hospital, did you ask God why? And I said, well, I never really got to that question because I know why. It's because of sin. Uh, Whether that's uh, universal sin that's passed down, as Romans 5 says about Adam, or whether that's my own sin. The moment that I knew the right thing to do and didn't do it, James says, that is sin. And so because of my sin, I deserve what? Death. But it is a good God who continues to give me life. A good God who lets me have choice. A good God allows us to choose and therefore we can choose the wrong. But the beautiful thing about that is as long as we're breathing air 
We have this tremendous opportunity to choose right. That we as the prodigal son can always come back as long as we have life. And we're given that wonderful opportunity. In Luke chapter 18, we see this story unfold. And a ruler, verse 18, and a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do? And I want you to uh, focus here for a minute on the word inherit. Inherit eternal life. So, as I said, we were talking about God being good. And there are several examples of this. Uh, James 1.17 uh, Psalm 84.11 says that God is a good, is good at giving gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Jeremiah 29.11 says that God is a hope giver. That in the midst of the most darkest times in our life, God gives us hope. In John 3.16, we see that God is a good life giver. John 10.10, 10, he says, I, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. Matthew 28, 20 says that that God is a good friend. Why? Because it says He's with us till the end. He is with us. And then Psalm 31, 19 and 34, 8 says that God gives us a good refuge. We can take refuge in Him. When we don't understand everything that's going on, when we're in the midst of the storm that Jesus promises will come, that we can find refuge in Him. But it's important to point out the idea of inherit eternal life. When we look at God as this young man or this ruler, it's not necessarily a political ruler. Most scholars believe that this ruler is one of a religious uh, sect, maybe of the Pharisees, but a ruler from a religious standpoint. And, And the question that many of the rabbis asked in Jesus' day was, how can I inherit eternal life? This is not a brand new question. This is not a question that other people had not asked before. It might not even be a question that Jesus himself had not just not been asked before. And so it's a very general question a lot of people ask. But I want you to focus a little bit on inherit. Uh, If you go back to John 3 that we mentioned, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and they have this conversation. And he tells Nicodemus that you've got to be born again. And what we get from that is this idea that If you wanted to be a Pharisee, you couldn't just decide to be a Pharisee. If I lived in Jesus' day, I couldn't just go and say, Okay, I'm going to train to be a Pharisee today. In fact, if I went to a Pharisee and said, How do I become a Pharisee? They would have said, Well, you've got to be born again. Because to be a Pharisee, your daddy had to be a Pharisee. Many times we make the connection that Jesus probably worked and built things because his dad built things. And so you couldn't just become a Pharisee. You had to be in the lineage of a Pharisee. And so there's a possibility that this ruler is asking, you know, what must I do? I mean, obviously I'm in the line of the Jews because of my ethnicity. I'm at the front of the line. But what else is there? Is there something else that I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's a very common question uh, in that day. In verse 19, and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I want to unpack that a little bit this evening as well. What does it mean when when Jesus here says there's only one good? And we obviously give credit to God being the one that is only good. But the good here, the definition of this, is morally perfect. Moral perfection. 
And that kind of gives us a little opening because I've always read this and thought, well, you know, Jesus is good, right? But good, but God or Jesus had not finished his ministry yet. He would be perfect. He is perfect at this moment, but it's kind of one of those things where, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good right now, but I don't want to necessarily mess that up. You know, I've not finished yet. And so I don't want to get ahead of myself, right? And so I believe, don't get me wrong, I believe Jesus is perfect. I believe that he was perfect. He is perfect. He sits at the right hand of God. But at this moment, don't get caught up in the fact that why didn't he claim to be good? He was, and he is. But at this moment, he's talking about moral perfection, which rightfully so, and what we'll talk about in just a moment, is impossible for human beings. It's impossible for us. In fact, to come to Jesus and to continue in Jesus, we must continually confess that we are morally imperfect, that we need a Savior. And that's the point that he's going to get at with this ruler. True goodness requires moral perfection. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And what Jesus quotes here are the fifth through the ninth commandments dealing with what relationship? The first few commandments of the old Ten Commandments deal with our relationship to God. How do we interact with God? How do we worship God? How do we please God? And then the last five through nine, or the five through all, well, actually ten is both, but five through nine deals with our relationship to one another, right? And so he lists these off. Notice that he says, you know these commandments. I'm I'm not imparting to you any wisdom, any knowledge that you don't already know. It's how you treat other people. And in this, we see a major difference with Jesus. In fact, you can go in, in the history books and you can look at some things that Confucius said. Confucius said uh, that, you know, that you should not do unto others as you don't want them to do. Right? If I don't want to get slapped in the face, I shouldn't go around slapping people. Right? If I don't want to have people talk badly about me, I shouldn't go around talking bad about people. And we as human beings go, that's a decent rule. That's a decent rule. We, we teach that to our children. I've taught that to my children. But Jesus comes along and says what? Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And we see Jesus start to unpack that for this ruler. And he unpacks it for us as well. And so he lists these commands. And what is his response? And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. What is he saying? I've never done these. I've never went out and actually done these things. And probably a lot of us could look at this very passage, see those commandments and go, I'm right there with you, buddy. I'm right there with you. I've never done those. I've never broken those commands. I've always, I've never mistreated anyone. I've always treated them, at least not outwardly, I've always treated them very well. Right? We can all kind of make that statement, or some of us can. And so he says, I've kept them all of my days. But verse 21 shows us a little bit of the, of the, of the statement in the heart of this ruler. You see, even if I thought that I've kept all these, I probably wouldn't be so confident in saying, oh, absolutely, I've not messed up in any of these. We've all, as we know, fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 22 
It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Now, I love the version in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, because it says he had genuine love for him. In the New Living Translation, it uses the word genuine love. And I like that because that's the point. Genuine love. See, we can go out and we can treat people equally. You know, you know, people all over the world want to treat people equally. We all want to be treated equally. But in my estimation, equality, being treated equal, really is a low bar. Being treated equally is like Confucius, right? I'm just not going to do this terrible, awful, bad thing to you. And we might even go so far to say as I can think about doing these awful, terrible things about you as long as I don't what? Do them to you. And what Jesus is getting at is a whole nother level. Genuinely loving people enough not only to not do those things, but to go, as Jesus himself says, the extra mile and love them in spite of their shortcomings. I love that Mark 10 says that he looked at him and he loved him. And then he said something difficult to hear. It's not the definition of love in our world, is it? The definition of love in our world is you just let people do whatever they want to do and you leave them alone. And Jesus could have easily left this old guy alone. Jesus could have just as easily left us alone. But he loved us too much to leave us where we were. And so he begins to point out the idolatry in the heart of this ruler. Just like he points out the idolatry in the heart of Travis Creasy. And if we really listen to the word, he points out the idolatry in all of our hearts. He goes right to the point. Right to the issue that he has. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Get rid of it all. What are you willing to hold back? And that's a question we all have to answer, right? What are we willing to hold back? What what is our pet project? What is our, our pet sin that we're willing to hold on to in spite of knowing in our deepest heart that it's holding us back from truly following the Lord? Distribute poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. I want us to turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And, and I want to look at an example. And maybe this example is one that, that you know, there, there's several examples in Ephesians chapter 6. And, and I could, I guess I could have been pretty hardcore and we could have went wives and husbands and we could have went with children and, and, and parents, right? And, and I would have been uh, on, on, in both of those uh, relationships. You know, I've been a son who's been disrespectful to a parent. Right? And the Old Testament says, you know, I always love it. It says, you know, respect your parents and you'll live long on the earth. You know, it's the first command with a promise. Uh, and then you read in the Old Testament that, in fact, it does say if you disrespect your parents, they can take you out to the court square and have you stoned, right? So we always like, oh, you respect your parents and the Lord will bless you with life. And really it's just him saying what my parents used to say, I brought you into the world. I can take you out. In the Old Testament, that was literal. They could do that. 
And so we're going to talk a little bit about here in verses 5 through 7, a genuine love. And and the word goodwill will come out in this text. And, And it's also translated in a word enthusiasm, right? Enthusiasm. I really like that word. I use that word with my football players all the time. There's a difference in coming to practice and going through the motions and coming to practice and having a little bit of enthusiasm when you practice. And I think that what is brought out here in Ephesians is the idea that we not only serve and love, and sometimes we love people despite the fact that we don't like them very much. And I think Ephesians takes that and goes, nope, that's not it. It's genuinely loving people. In verses 5, and beginning in verse 5, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. I believe the Holy Spirit does a work in us. As long as we follow the Lord, He's working on our hearts. And I'll be the first one that sometimes you have to fake it till you make it. But at some point, the Spirit changes our heart to a genuine goodwill love towards those people that are hard to love. And He says, masters and slaves. I can't think... In my mind, and I've never experienced this relationship, but in my mind, it's hard for me to think and grasp of a relationship that might be more difficult to look at one another and genuinely love. Not just genuinely love, but like that person. And yet Paul puts out that challenge. He says, you genuinely love this person. You grow to see them as what? A brother in Christ. Not willing to hold back anything. We read in Acts 2. We're Acts 2 people, right? And it says that that none of them had need, right? Because what? They sacrificed to themselves. They could not stand to see someone else without. To the point they were willing to give of themselves. In Matthew chapter 18, let's move back over there. In Matthew chapter 18, or Luke 18, I keep saying Matthew 18 because we're going to Matthew 18 in just a moment. But Luke 18, we go back and, and he's talking about this genuine love and how does that genuine love show up and how we treat others. When we refuse to withhold. My children, you know, there are certain things that my, my, my little girl loves and she's not going to let her brother do what? Touch it. Because what does her little brother do? Destroy everything he touches, right? And so she's very happy for him to play with these other toys over here. But you can't have this one. And so when she takes that one that she loves dearly and she gives it to her brother to play with, it's shocking. (laughs) It shocks the system like, oh, I didn't see that coming. You want to shock the world? Give of yourself. Give the very things of yourself that you would not share with anybody else, that you love beyond all measure. Isn't that what God did? It says God 
that Jesus was his only begotten son. That's what he did, right? He gave the most precious treasure of his heart. You know, the passion of Christ, the most difficult part for me to watch is when his mama is watching. She doesn't want to watch. She can't tear herself away. And I think of that mama's love. And even that mama's love doesn't compare to the love that the father had, not only for his son, but as Romans 8 tells us, those of us who would be heirs alongside him. A genuine love, a sacrificial love that he's trying to get across to this young man. Luke 16 says that we cannot serve two masters. And he uses the example of what there? Money. We cannot serve two masters because that's a form of idolatry. Down in verse 27, or leading into verse 27, we see that the, this man goes away sorrowful. He goes away sad because he's not willing to do what? Sacrifice everything. You know, I read that story. You know who I have more in common with? It's not Jesus. I'm that rich guy, right? I read the story of rich man and Lazarus, and, and, and I didn't do this on purpose tonight, but my school colors are purple. You know what the rich man wears? Purple. I use that in chapel from time to time, and inevitably when I use it, I'm wearing purple. And a lot of times it's not even on purpose. But I got a lot in common with that guy, and I got a lot in common with this guy. Because there are things I want to hold on to. Lord, I'm not quite ready to give that up yet. That's what makes me, me. But yet, he continues to push. Verse 27 of chapter 18 I can imagine that as disciples, they probably would have liked this guy to be on their team. Why? He's got money. Who doesn't like that guy on their team, right? More money. More things that we can do, right? More, more ministries that we can have. All you got to do is smooth that guy a little bit. All you got to do is, I mean, he'll get it eventually, right? You should have been a little bit easier on that guy, man. Just tell him to come on. You know, the Lord is, is good at pushing that envelope. He pushes that envelope in my own heart. Because in verse 27, he's not done with hard sayings. Back up to 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. You see, tonight, we're all debtors, Right? Or at least we've all been debtors at some point. And really the only difference between Christians and, and, and those who, who aren't Christians are that we have chosen to acknowledge that Jesus has paid a debt that I could never pay. Right? He's actually paid the debt for all the people in this room, all the people outside this room, around the world. But the difference is, is some of us acknowledge that we were debtors. That he paid a debt we could not pay. And so in that, it really kind of levels the playing field. And, and when I read this, I hear that it is absolutely impossible. I remember when we got our son, the first time he came to the house, he wouldn't go to sleep. Right? I, never, I don't have any kids other than these two. Never had any in my house. 2.30 in the morning, he's screaming his head off. And I remember that clear thought of saying, God, I cannot do this anymore. 
And I won't say it was an audible voice. But whatever it was, it hit me right between the eyes. It might as well have been audible. But I can. God tells us over and over in Scripture, you cannot do this. And when you had nothing to offer, Christ died for you. Christ died for you. We're all debtors. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. You see, salvation is impossible by human effort. It's only possible by the grace of God. In Matthew chapter 18, we see this story of where there's this man who owes 10,000 talents, which is an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of money. And you know, if you're broke and you haven't got anything, if you owe 10 cents... It doesn't, it doesn't matter really the, the price, does it? If you owe something and you don't, can't pay it, it could be a million dollars, it could be $500. If you ain't got it, you ain't got it. You don't have it. This man owes 10,000 talents. And the master forgives him. He says he goes out, starts finding those people who owe him money, and he begins to shake him. Yeah, hey, you better, I'm going to throw you in jail. And what happens? The first master finds out. And he comes back and he punishes him. Verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your what? Heart. Tonight there may be all kinds of things going on in your life. I don't know about it. I'm I'm just a, a visiting preacher. And I'll get in my car here in a minute and I'll head back to Fayetteville. But there's a church here who loves you enough that they'd invite a visiting preacher to come from Fayetteville to talk to you about the gospel. I'd say that's, that, that's some care there. And I believe with my heart that they are willing to forgive from the heart. But you see, it's, it's one of these reciprocal deals. We can't be the church that we need to be until we forgive the way we're supposed to forgive. And I think this is such a bold statement that I sometimes have read, I've read over it a bunch of times and never caught that from your heart. You see, the sad thing is, is there's so many people in the world today who live with bitterness. With bitterness. For whatever reason. There are people today who, who will not go to church because someone 20 years ago said something to them or their parents or their mom or whatever. And I always, when I talk to those people, I'm always like, So you're willing to give up your salvation based on what somebody said. I can't think of a a, a sadder situation, and I don't believe that we'll actually get an opportunity to give God an argument as to why we did what we did. I, I don't know if that'll be the case or not. I don't think it will be. But if it were to be that way, how sad would it be to say, I gave up my salvation because of so and so? It'd be terrible, it'd be awful. You, you give them more power in your life than they were ever meant to have. But you see, we teach people over and over again. I teach my own kids. I've got to be careful with my own kids to tell them that, that we almost instill it in that you don't forgive people until they say they're what? Sorry. Did I get an opportunity to tell Jesus I'm sorry before he died for my sins? That's not a biblical precedent. Now, it's great when people are willing to say they're sorry. But the Bible tells us that we forgive 
He, he told Peter, 70 times 7. We get out the calculator, right? Well, let's see what that is. Uh, he's hit me a couple of times. That's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you forgive like God forgave. What did God do? He forgave us. Jesus died before any of us ever said, I'm sorry, Lord. I messed up. He did the heavy lifting before any of us said we're sorry. And so God wants the same for you. You know what? When we forgive people, it takes this burden off my back. And it helps me run that race a little bit faster. A little bit more streamlined. So tonight as we get ready to sing this song, understand that it's a song that encourages us Maybe where you're sitting. Maybe there's public things that you need to get off your chest. You need to do that before the body of Christ tonight. Maybe you need to do that. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're sitting there and something's been revealed in your heart tonight. You know what you can do? You can get forgiveness of that if you're a Christian. You you can do it right where you're sitting. You can be convicted and say, I repent of that, Lord. But tonight, if you're not a Christian, that's not how that works. You've got to put on the blood of Christ in baptism. You've got to confess before the world, before us tonight, that you are a believer that Jesus came and died for you and paid your debt that you could never even begin to pay. And then the forgiveness can begin between you and your family because of the justification and the sanctification bought with the precious blood of Christ. Tonight, if you have a need, no matter how small it is, We as the body of Christ are called to help in whatever way that we can. I encourage you to do that as we stand and sing.